0: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Geography. I'm your host, Bob Wilson, Associate Professor of Geography at Syracuse University. I'm thrilled to have author Randy Olson with us today. Randy is the author or co-author of three books, most recently, Houston, We Have a Narrative, Why Science Needs Story. All of his books explore the importance of science, communication, and storytelling. And to do this, Randy brings his unique background and training to the subject. A Harvard-trained biologist and former tenure professor, Randy has a deep familiarity with science. But he's also a graduate of the world-renowned film program at the U.S. uh, University of Southern California. So he's an interesting blend of research scientists and Hollywood-trained communicator. But what can Randy teach us as geographers and other academics? A lot, I'd say. Through his books and presentations, Randy shows the clarifying power of narrative. Story is an indispensable tool when we, as geographers and other academics, communicate to our students and the general public. Yet Randy also shows how we can hone our narrative intuition and use our story sense to write better abstracts, articles, and grant applications. His work has proved vital in my Writing Geography Graduate Seminar at Syracuse, a course which introduces MA and PhD students to storytelling, creative nonfiction, and how they can use these tools in their own work. Randy says we should all be telling stories. So I'm delighted to have Randy here today to hear some of his stories about his training, his work, and how his insights might help us striving to be better communicators and storytellers. So Randy, welcome to New Books in Geography. Uh, great to be here, Bob. Thanks very much. Great. Now, Randy, I first met you about seven years ago when you came to Syracuse University to give a presentation about an earlier book you wrote, Don't Be Such a Scientist, Talking Substance in an Age of Style. But when you did, you got a tough question from Terry who was in the audience. Now you later told me that this was one of the worst experiences, uh, at least in terms of presentations you had ever had. So we can maybe we can call it the Edinger moment. Uh, it, it wasn't a pretty sight. And I wanted you to tell the listeners about it. But before you do, uh, maybe you could tell us a little bit more about this background. You have the most unusual uh, background or CV or resume of any Ph.D. scientist I've ever known. So what was your journey from budding scientist decades ago to story guru today?
1: Uh, well, first off, just a clarification, it wasn't one of the worst experiences in public speaking for me. It was the worst, and we will get around to it. It's also my most favorite moment in public yeah. speaking. Um, but, yeah, um where do we start on this lengthy journey of mine that stretches over the course of really 40 years? Uh, I became a marine biologist. It was my life's passion and I did a wonderful, fun career in marine biology. I did everything from living on an island in the Great Barrier Reef for a year. I spent a month in Antarctica diving under the ice. I spent one day, li- um, I spent uh, a week living in an undersea habitat 60 feet down the Caribbean. And I spent one day in a deep sea submersible, mile belief below the surface of the, the sea. So wow. I basically did everything I ever wanted to do as marine biologist, had all these great experiences and stories. And found myself wanting to communicate them and eventually wanting to communicate them more effectively. And right when I became a professor at the University of New Hampshire, I really started to get interested in, in filmmaking. Um, so I began making my own films, winning awards for those, realizing that it was something I was capable of doing at least somewhat. And finally got so serious about that and then the broader aspects of it, which is the mass communication of information in general in a society that is glutted with information that by the time I received my uh, tenure appointment at the University of New Hampshire, I had decided to make a major career shift. And so I resigned from the tenure professorship, which horrified lots and lots of people, moved to Los Angeles, <laughs> as you can imagine, uh, moved to Los Angeles, entered into film school at the University of Southern California, went through the three-year graduate production program uh, where I had an absolute ball. It was the most wonderful thing I ever did. But that's partly because I was not married, I did not have any children, and I was footloose and fancy free and could sure. roll up massive amounts of debts that it costs to go to film school and not have to sweat about ruining other people's lives. Um, got out of film school and set to work making films and eventually made a movie called Flock of Dodos, the Evolution Intelligent Design Circus that was about the controversy over the teaching of evolution versus intelligent design, um, primarily in the state of Kansas, my home state. That movie did very well. It premiered at the Tribeca Film Festival and aired on Showtime for a couple of years. Um, made a second movie called Sizzle, a global warming comedy that was a little low-budget, mockumentary, wacky piece yeah. about, um, about climate, but it was actually pretty interesting sort of experimental film. And then finally in 2009, sat down and wrote this book that was kind of the synthesis of the 15 years by then I'd spent in Hollywood, everything that I'd learned, and that was the book Don't Be Such a Scientist. And that uh, it was interesting, you know, getting back to the coming back around to the science world. So my journey consists of three parts from scientists to cinema, then back to science. And as I began to come back to science in the academic world, it began with those two movies. And one thing I found was that the academic world has a hard time with yes. the film of film. Um, film is too non-literal for academics at times. Not all academics, but in general, it is a very visceral, non-literal, non-informational, non-intellectual medium. And lots of academics read it completely wrong, and they get the wrong messages, and I experienced a ton of that. And both of those films, Dodos and Sizzle, had this core message of scientists are really bad with communication. And, you know, broad audiences completely understood what I was talking about with the films, But the academic crowd really kind of got flummoxed by the films to a large extent. wasn't until I finally sat down and put my message into writing in a book into the medium of academia that the academics could finally sit down, read that, and digest it. And that's when I think they really started to get it. And that's when they began to invite me to come around and and speak and do workshops at at different universities.
0: And those books, uh, excuse me, those movies that you did, one of the things that impressed me about those and I found intriguing Flock of Dodos and Sizzle, is you really waded into two of the most, at least publicly controversial science issues today. One is the evolution or the evolution intelligent design controversy, and then also controversies around uh, climate change. Who are some of the people, particularly in Sizzle, that you included? Because it wasn't just scientists that you included in that movie Sizzle.
1: Yeah, no, I I – was pretty much the first person to make a film that put um, six climate skeptics up on the screen. And as a result, lots and lots of climate science people hated me for it. Um, we, we did screenings where we had panel discussions that had climate scientists on the panel that that told me I was a disgrace to the entire profession of science. I had to sit there and endure their insults. I had to sit through screenings of 250 scientists not laughing one bit at this comedy. Um, it was a real litmus test of, of people's... Um, kind of thinking in terms of how audiences responded to it. When I got it to broader audiences, they thoroughly enjoyed it. They got it. They rolled with the whole journey. They laughed in the humor in the first half of it. And then they dove deep into the emotion of the second half. And we went to see New Orleans and the effect of a climate disaster in a developed nation. But a lot of scientists just didn't, did not get it. You know, they were too literal minded. And in the, the film, we had, uh, as you say, six climate skeptics, uh, one of whom, Mark Morano, has emerged sure. as kind of the loudest, most aggressive, media-oriented climate skeptic. And he and I are, are not only still buddies, we trade emails from time to time, but as you may recall, when we screened the movie absolutely, yes, <laughs> at your university, by coincidence, we were at dinner the night before it was for Earth Day, and one of your students mentioned there's some guy coming to speak tomorrow night to the conservative club, Mark something or other, and I yes. said, wait a second, it's not Mark Morano, is it? He's in my movie, so I sent him an email that night, and he said, yeah, I'll be there. And so he came over and joined our post-screening discussion, which was a wonderful thing. We had about 200 of your graduate students there in that environmental studies program. And in the q and I still remember one of the students got up and said I, to Mark Morano, said, I want to thank you for coming here because we are stuck in a bubble here. We are being programmed with environmental ethics and beliefs and policy, which is great, but it's nice once in a while to hear an opposing voice. And that is the very bane of the whole environmental movement as they tend to get together and preach to themselves and are at times intolerant of other members of society that don't share their beliefs. So that's a fortunate dynamic. And that was a really great night in that regard.
0: It was, it was a a really fortuitous that he was there. I mean, it was quite an interesting discussion. I mean, there wasn't necessarily a lot of, I mean, you were on it, there were other scientists uh, who were on it and Mark Morano. I mean, it was a really lively night. Uh, but also during your visit, as I mentioned earlier, you gave a presentation, you showed Sizzle one night, and then you also gave a presentation on your book, which had just been released. Uh, and so you gave a presentation on that, uh, that I thought was quite good, but you got a tough question from the audience. Here we go. <laughs> And in some ways, that question from this person in the audience served, it seemed, as an impetus for your most recent book, Houston, We Have a Narrative. So tell us about what happened during that presentation.
1: This guy was <laughs> provided a pivotal moment in my journey. Um, so, yeah, you know, I showed up there. I remember it was a snowy day, like in February, something like that. True. And one of the first meetings that was set up for me as I got there was to meet with this guy who's the manager of the greenhouse. Wasn't even a faculty member or anything like that. He had his own local public access um, show on um, kind of gardening or something like that. Uh, his name is Terry Ettinger. And, and I, we went up there to the greenhouse, walked into his office, and there he was, like, mm-hmm. waving this copy of my book back and forth and and saying, your book, your book you don't understand. I don't read books. A friend of mine gave me this and said, you need to read this book. And, and I don't usually read books, but I sat down, and I started reading it and I couldn't put it down and it's changed my whole life. It's been incredible. It's, it's the most amazing thing. And you know, the reason why is you told us that we need to tell stories. And the way you did that was you told stories. And I just sat there taking it all in like, thank you. This is awesome. Um And so he said he would come to the talk later that, that afternoon. So I gave the talk to your department, and there were probably 200 people there, I'd say, in that little kind of amphitheater setting, and um, got to the end of it, thought I'd done a good job, and there was Terry Ettinger in the front row, literally, waving his arm back and forth for the first guy to be called on for the Q&A, and I called on him and got ready for him to give the whole testimonial about my amazing book. Um, and he got up and turned his back to me and spoke to your entire crowd. And he said, yeah, I remember that. <laughs> you remember that? He said, yeah. I, I read this guy's book and it's an amazing book. You all need to read it. It's so good because he tells us that we need to communicate through stories. But the way that he tells us that in the book is he tells stories himself. And it's so amazing. And then he turned back to me and he said, now, having said that, I have to tell you that I am deeply disappointed. I walked all the way across campus in the snow to come to this talk here, and you didn't tell us any stories. All you did was bore us with a whole bunch of facts of what the information is in your book. And I stood there with the voice in the back of my head saying, that guy is absolutely right. I threw this talk together in the last day or so. I did not put the kind of effort in that it takes to tell stories, and I have just been busted here in public. And before I could even speak, a woman on the other side of the audience stood up and said, I disagree. I thought this was an excellent talk. And I wanted to say to her, sit down, ma'am. This guy's right. Let him speak further. Um, because he was absolutely right. And then like the whole, there's a basic unfair dynamic, which is the, the person on the stage is always right. So everybody in the crowd was kind of turning on the poor guy. Um, and I, and in fact, even I turned on him because I immediately got defensive and I said, well, you know, there's different kinds of talks. This and not- I. Academic audience here. So I did this talk, more to an academic good. audience. When in fact, it was totally wrong what I was saying. So later at the reception, I found him, and by then he had been beaten up by everybody. And I went over, I remember he was over in the corner, and he said, I just want to apologize. I'm so sorry. I said, No, man, that was, that was the best thing ever. And you know what? Most professors would never speak that, honestly. They're so stuck in committee meetings and all the politics and diplomacy. Uh, it takes a greenhouse manager to just be willing to speak the truth to the stupid guest speaker and say, look, you know, you're not, you're, (laughs) this is false advertising. Um, You're not living up to your book. Uh, So that
0: sounds like a humbling moment in some ways, but it might've been one of the reasons that spurred you to write your next book. It's spurred
1: spurred a bunch of things. And literally I spent the next month or two digesting that. And then finally it popped out of me, which was what the hell I got to give a talk that tells a story. And so literally I sat down and came up with a script for the story of a woman who um, leaves her job at a law firm to take a job as communications director for a small laboratory on the coast of Maine, and she gets there, and she tries to be informational, and everything melts down, and she about loses her job, but then one night she has a dream, and Superman visitors, visits her in her dream with a copy of my book, and she reads the book and then changes how she communicates, and everything's wonderful. Um, and then I recruited a group of my actor friends here in Hollywood, and we went out and shot a, like about 40 slides to tell the story with. And I put it all together, and I gave that talk for about two years, and it was so much fun because it had humor and emotion. It told the story, exactly sure. the thing I was preaching. I gave that talk to probably about a 1,000 people at the Centers for Disease Control. They had me down in August of that year. And they had me in their main theater, but then they had me on, like, five other campuses and, like, three other theaters there. And everybody loved it. That resulted in me doing five more visits to CBC. So all of that from the greenhouse manager, Terry Enger, which is why. Uh, and then eventually, yeah, I, I wrote the, the third book, um, Houston, We Have a Narrative. And in the acknowledgments, I told that little story of thanks to him because he's the guy that spoke the truth. There, there needs to be more people like that who can just stand up to boring speakers and say, I don't care how accurate your data are. You just presented us here. Nobody got anything out of this thing because you made such a boring mess out of it. I wish I had the cojones to do that myself.
0: Well, it was an awkward moment during the Q&A, but I'm glad you did it because if that helped encourage you to write your your next book, I'm very glad because I've uh, really appreciated this book and learned a lot about it. And I have a lot of questions about it. But before I do, maybe you could tell us a little bit about what you wanted to achieve in this new book, Houston, We Have a Narrative, Why Science Needs story.
1: Yeah, the, the mission that I'm really on now at the broadest and simplest of all levels is, um, we don't need story. We need narrative. And this is a, a clarification that's got to be, uh, conveyed. It's, it's not a subtlety. It's really super important. It's at the core of everything. And how we're going to get that across is going to be a long sustained mission. But, um, what I have done is brought an element of simplicity through bringing an analytical mind to storytelling. And I think a lot of people in the humanities would be horrified by the things that I'm doing with this book and the way I'm boiling it down to simplicity. But the flip side of that is an awful lot of people who have no intuition when it comes to narrative are benefiting from this, and we're now doing a whole training program and seeing the results of that. So it's it's very good. But the the thing is that um I've boiled down the stuff to very simple terms in in workshops I began doing after the first book came out. Lots of these places like CDC said we want you to come and do a workshop. And what do you want to do a workshop on? And I didn't know, but I said, you know, seems to me the biggest chapter of the book was titled Don't Be Such a Poor Storyteller. Why don't we try and dive in on that? And so I put together a workshop where I recruited two actor friends of mine in Hollywood, one of whom was a both uh, actress and script consultant uh, for screenwriters, and she knew narrative really well. She knew all about Joseph Campbell and the Greeks and all this kind of stuff, and and I learned a ton from her, Dory Barton. And then also an improv instructor, Brian Palermo from the Groundlings. And so the three of us put together a workshop called Connection that we ran for about three years. And then we finally wrote a book, the three of us, called Connection, Hollywood Storytelling Meets Critical Thinking. So that was the first major step on the way towards the the third book. And then the third book ended up being a distillation of that's the narrative stuff brought back to the science world and really applied in the science to put it in that context. Our, our connection book was more broad. It was kind of like for everybody, but Houston, we have a narrative is now making the argument to the science world of why we need to, to understand these narrative principles. And it's, um, you know, the irony is that it's already there in the science world. Actually, one of my overarching um, ideas that I'm cultivating now is that I, I think we're losing narrative intuition in our society. So this is a term that I coined in the book, narrative intuition. It kind of derives from a term that you hear all the time in Hollywood among screenwriters, which is story sense. And to do a good job with, with telling, with writing a screenplay or telling a story, you have to have this sense, this kind of intuitive feel for how a story is shaped. And there's no bunch of templates and rule books that can guide you exactly how to do it. At some point, you finally got to basically absorb the art side of it all so that you can shape it on your own. And I modified that term into narrative intuition. And that's a lot of my mission now is to get people to realize that um, that's the real power. And, you know, we can I don't know if we want to get into this later, but I've, I've got a whole separate bunch of lectures these days about how our new president has deep narrative intuition. And that, that was, I think a major, the major. Yeah. And
0: and I would like to get back to that, uh, particularly towards the end of our conversation about how you're taking some of these ideas you've learned about, about uh, storytelling and narrative intuition and using it in a way to To help understand what's happening kind of politically in the country and why Trump has been very successful conveying his message to at least uh, part of the American public. But Hillary Clinton wasn't was unsuccessful. But before we get to that, uh I want to talk about maybe some of the challenges and pushbacks you might get from scientists in particular and maybe academics more more generally. And part of it might come from some of the words you use, like, say, in the cover of the book of story or maybe storytelling, because sometimes when you say stories, well, okay, stories is something that I we read to children and storytelling is something we do around the campfire in short. Those two words make it sound maybe what you're doing is trivial and unimportant. So how would you convince academics otherwise why these uh, storytelling, cultivating story sense or narrative intuition is really important?
1: I think the answer is that I share their concerns. And in the science world, I share their concerns. I think I'm stuck with a communications challenge in that narrative is a more analytical word that is a little tougher to get to the bigger, broader audience story. Everybody's already predisposed to that. So sort of taking advantage of the word story as an entry point, but really wanting to get more towards narrative. So let me start by defining those terms because that, that's what that
0: happened. That would be helpful, yeah.
1: Yeah, that's thats what happened was Brian, my improv instructor, began to badger me about this for literally two years and in, in our workshop. He said, you need to tell these people what the definition of narrative is versus story. And at first I said, well, you can't pull them apart. You know, they're kind of one in the same and then I talked to some of the humanities folks that I know and asked them for their definitions and found that it was the same thing with them. It's really circular. Well, you know, a narrative is basically a story. Well, then what's a story? Well, story is kind of a narrative, that blah, 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 <laughs> and really circular. And, and I can even show you books that, that basically engage in that way of defining them. And that's not good enough, you know, especially for teaching, if you really want people to advance. So I dug deeper, and I've come up with my very simple – albeit hackneyed definition of what the word narrative means. And I really don't care if humanities people are offended by this because we're at a point now where we're so inundated with information that these dynamics are super important to be able to communicate effectively. So I define narrative as the series of events that occur in the search for a solution to a problem and how that relates to story is that the narrative dynamic is there in the center of a story. It's the driving force of a story. But a story is more because it includes also the non-narrative part of the whole process. And a story was originally kind of outlined in great detail by Joseph Campbell, who came up with his template for The Monomyth. And what he did was look at storytelling around the world, different cultures and religions, and came up with what he felt was a singular template that they're all built around. And it's... He describes a story as being a circular journey that begins in one place, ends at the same place, and along the way goes through three phases. So it begins in what he termed the ordinary world. I would relabel that as the non-narrative world. And this is the world where we don't have a problem yet. So think of a murder mystery and this is the beginning where we go to a little town and we get to know all the people and it's relatively dull and boring and there's nothing interesting going on.
0: Yeah, it's like exposition. You're sort of like. That's it.
1: It's exposition. Exactly. So it's the setup. Um, and then something happens and that's the problem. And now we're off on this narrative journey. And now we enter into what Joseph Campbell called the special world. And I would refine that as the narrative world because now the narrative process has begun and neurophysiologists are now beginning to show what happens in the brain, which is once you pose a problem, the brain lights up. And if you've got a whole crowd of people and they're all thinking about the same problem, turns out their brain activity is very similar. All the same parts of their brain Light up. This is the power of the problem-solution dynamic. And it is so primal that all communication really needs to begin with this problem-solution dynamic. And it's universal and goes back to the beginning of time. And it's the unifying element. We've got a problem. How are we going to solve it? So nowadays, I get all these people coming to me with these communication problems. Oh, my God, I've got so much information. I can't get it across to all these people. And I just stop them and say, let's just start by talking about what's the problem you're trying to address and what do you think the solution is, what direction you want to go. So it all begins with the problem-solution dynamic, and that's the core of the story. And so the stereotypical story I use throughout the book is The Wizard of Oz. And you know the ordinary world for The Wizard of Oz is Dorothy living her boring life in Kansas, but then a tornado takes her to Oz, and that's the special world. And what's interesting is as soon as you land in the special world, as exciting and exhilarating and fun as it might be, the very first thing you want to do is the only thing you want to do is get back to that ordinary world again. That's where you want to be. It's basically Nirvana. It's the place where nothing's troubling you. And everybody lives all day, every day just trying to get back to some aspect of the ordinary world. That's the driving force. And so you go through this long journey then, uh, for example, in the murder mystery, trying to solve it, get the solution, or in the case of Dorothy, trying to figure out how to get back to Kansas. And then finally you solve it and that takes you back to the third phase, which is the back to the ordinary world, but now able to do the grand synthesis. So people are now getting really attuned to storytelling and this is becoming familiar. With lots of places, lots of people. And there's lots of good books and things like that. Um, but the important thing to know is that story and narrative in my world, my definitions, at least are not the same. Narrative is that little chunk in there where your brain's fired up and then it, you know, you solve the thing and your brain kind of calms down. And that becomes the universal dynamic that underpins logic, reason, storytelling, the scientific method. And that's the universality, which, by the way, Hegel figured out in the 1700s with his triad of thesis, antithesis, synthesis, that underpins all of these different disciplines. And I think it's, you know, people talk about, we want to bring together the sciences um, and the humanities. This is the pathway to it, I think, is understanding this is the common ground is narrative structure, and there's no reason that scientists should have any trouble with narrative structure. Now, I do
0: want to... let me stop you there, because when we're talking about narrative structure, so let's go back to your example of the Wizard of Oz, and you're using that as an example, and I understand that as a narrative structure. But I can imagine that some people who are listening, like, say, a scientist, and I'm like, Okay, narrative structure. I sort of see that, but like, okay, giving the example of Wizard of Oz and they're leaving your ordinary world and they're going on this journey and they're coming back. What does that have to do with the work that I'm trying to do in science? How would I take that template to help the work that I'm doing in a lab or a social scientist is doing is taking, uh, research they've, they've gotten from work in the field and now they're trying to, to write it up. How would you use those dimensions in, uh, how would an academic use that?
1: Yeah, so the, the sad irony is that it's already there in the science world. It's just that uh, there's been a collective loss of consciousness of a lot of this stuff, and I think scientists have a hard time believing that you can get stupider as you get smarter. But some of these aspects, that's that's exactly what's happening. So one of the things I tell about the beginning of the book that, that just stunned me was I began at giving big talks you know, I get invited to do these keynote addresses at the beginning of meetings of 2,000 scientists or whatever. And in the talk, I would put up this acronym on the screen and ask the entire audience, how many people know what this acronym means? And the acronym was IMRAD, I-M-R-A-D. And the first time I did it was nearly a 1,000 scientists. Not a single hand went up in this big ballroom. I'm standing up there looking back and forth. Does anybody know what I-M-R-A-D stands for? And finally, I go on to the second question which Is okay, has anybody here in this audience ever read a scientific paper broken into four sections? I for introduction, M for methods, R for results, A for and B for discussion. And by the time you get to the R for results, you can hear all through the auditorium, everybody laughing. Oh my God, you got us. Yeah. That's the template that we're born and raised on that we live and breathe day in and day out. It's just that none of them even know there's a name for it it is so deeply kind of in the firmament of what they do now that they don't talk about it or think about it. But the fact is if you search MRAD on Google, you'll find an entire field of historians who have studied it because it's a template that was established a century ago and slowly made its way through all the different scientific journals to the point where today pretty much every journal has got some variation of the MRAD template that they use. And what the MRAD template is, is the narrative template for the science world that forces these scientists to be narrative in what they communicate. Because lots of scientists, are they're so in love with their information, left on their own, they would just go stream of consciousness. They would just do out a whole bunch of facts. This is a tool that actually forces them into beginning, middle, and end and the same things. Um, and so the introduction of a paper is the beginning. It's all that ordinary world that Joseph Campbell described – the methods and results are the narrative part, the journey. So the methods begin or the introduction ends by establishing the problem. You know, you go through all the literature and you say, now this is the thing that people have not studied. Uh, therefore, these are the experiments that we did. And here are the results we got. And so the methods and results are the special world. That's the whole journey of what goes on. And then you get to the end and then the discussion is coming back to The ordinary world where you you said our research, you know, answers that question. We now can let that question go. Here's the solution. And here's what it means for us. So it's
0: okay. So if so, if that uh, if that um, I'm uh, I'm rad uh, is a a is a type of narrative and scientists. Wait, 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 wait,
1: wait, wait. what what type of narrative?
0: Is it a. That's a narr- basically what you're laying out is I'm read as a type of narrative structure. Those yeah. scientists have not recognized it as such. Is that correct?
1: Um, yeah. There's only one type of narrative structure. There's only beginning, middle, and end. And that's okay. that's really important because, you know, I get people saying, you know, oh, that's one way to do this stuff. And no, sorry, this goes back to the Greeks. It goes back to Mesopotamia 4,000 years ago. There's only one iconic way, archetypal way that, that narrative is put together. There's variations on it that will result in fewer people really being able to follow it. But in terms of trying to reach the masses, there's really only one form.
0: Okay. So if they're following that narrative already, what do you want your book to contribute to scientists? Because if I'm understanding correctly, they're already following a type of narrative structure or the narrative structure, but they don't realize necessarily they're doing, because nobody's maybe explained it to them in this way. But you've written this book that's trying to make scientists and other academics better communicators. So what is your book bringing to them uh, that they don't know already?
1: Yeah. So it's communication basically consists of two parts, science and art. And the science part of it is this template. Um, and that's nice. And that helps you a lot. But in order for it to work in the bigger picture, you also have to have the art part, and that's this narrative intuition that I'm talking about, which means that you've got to work with this stuff so much that you can feel it and you can shape it on your own because there are no templates for a 10-page paper or something like that. And the thing you run into with scientists is the the MRAD actually, in some ways, is does a disservice to scientists. So in a perfect world, um, the editors would be so hardworking that they wouldn't, have they wouldn't force you to break it into those sections? There'd be no section headings or whatever. They would slave over reworking your stuff with you to make it have perfect narrative form um, th- that it takes care of itself. But that's a perfect world that takes a ton of time and energy. So instead, what they do is they've come up with these templates. And not only that, what's happening now with a lot of the more heavily analytical journals um, is they're doing what's called um, for their abstracts called a structured abstract. And what that means is you go to the writer's guideline in the journal and it verbatim tells you exactly how to break down this one paragraph abstract for the beginning of your paper. It says the first sentence should tell us, you know, what the system is you study. The second sentence should identify the problem, blah, 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 blah. And it's really total cookbook, which you can start to see what's going on here, which is that the editors don't have time, energy, and interest to actually rewrite your stuff. They want to make sure it's understandable from the beginning. So they're giving you this little formulaic. Structure to fill in the blanks, which is great for everybody reading it, but the net result is the scientists putting together are not learning anything. They're not shaping that intuitive part of their their brain for narrative. They're just filling in the blanks. And what I think we're on our way on a journey towards is eventually a a non-narrative world, a world in which we've got just everybody's a bunch of zombies that fill in information. And I'm trying to tell scientists that in the the century since those great people put together that MRAD template, um, I feel you can go back and look at, at 100 years ago, scientists were had much deeper narrative intuition than they have today. We've now created a whole system where people can run through this stuff. I've got a section of the book called Sprinting Past the Humanities, where everybody, including myself, now if you want to be a scientist, you can bypass all this humanity stuff and just get right. I want to get right into the science. And guess what? You end up as a scientist who's a robot who can't communicate. Um, I learned all these things starting at about age 35 when I got into filmmaking and I wish I had known about the Hegel's triad back in the beginning of being a scientist. I wish I'd known that underpin the the four sections of a scientific paper, but I didn't. And so I learned it all after the fact. But um, I think this is a serious, large-scale concern for the future. I don't know. I mean, I don't know if it's a disaster or whatever if we end up with everybody being robotic in the science world. But I think that our whole society is you know, working in this non-narrative direction, and the humanities, if you ask me, are more important today than ever before, and there needs to be more effort to underscore their importance and value, because the sciences have just trampled over humanities on college campuses across the country.
0: Well, I'd agree with that wholeheartedly. This humanities perspective, and particularly what you're talking about narrative, really resonates with me, and I think would resonate with a lot of the students I teach. But one of the questions that they have, and certainly I would have for you too, is how do you balance narrative... With analysis, is that as uh, uh, academics, whether you're a scientist, social scientist, and humanities, and you, if you want to embrace this narrative, some of the pushback you might get, is like, "Well, we need to do analysis too." So uh, you could use your narrative to draw people in to create an emotional response to what you're talking about. But academics oh, well, are also well, expected well, well, to wait, wait, wait. analyze and theorize. No, no, wait, yeah. we,
1: we got to stop right there. Where, where, the, right. where did the emotional response come into play?
0: Isn't that partly what you want to do by doing these narratives to get people to have an emotional connection to what you're doing?
1: No, 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 no. Very important point. This is the fork in the road right here. Exactly. Between story and narrative. So narrative is this totally analytical problem solution dynamic. Story is indeed what you're talking about. Bringing in the emotion and human elements and all those sorts of things. It's what you add on on top of the narrative structure. But narrative structure is this universal dynamic that underpins everything, particularly the scientific method. This is where the science world has got to, to absorb this and realize there's nothing to be feared from narrative. There is stuff to be feared from story and storytelling and emotion, things like that. You know, I used to get manuscripts to review as a scientist, and people would, A, try and slip jokes in the middle of it, of their manuscript, um, which is just noise that you're adding in there into this analytical process, and you don't want that in there. And secondly, especially conservation papers, you could suddenly feel the writer getting emotional about some, you know, we're losing this resource. Uh, that's great, but we don't want that in the analytical world of science. What we do want is narrative. We don't want storytelling. So it's that fundamental divide that I'm getting more and more kind of hopped up on. And as a matter of fact, just this morning in the, or no, yesterday, I guess the New York Times was an article about the scientists are planning a big march and, you know, and for Earth Day. And then there was a scientist who wrote this editorial in the New York Times saying this is a bad idea. And he ended by saying, what we need is more storytellers, not marchers. And I read that and said, no, we don't. That's wrong. What we need is narrative training. Um, the science world doesn't need storytellers. I mean, their they're popularizers need that. But really, what the science world itself needs is this clear understanding of the power and importance of narrative and all the different quirks that go with it. So
0: does that make sense, that divide? Well, somewhat. But for instance, later in your book, you talk, you talk about word, you talk uh, about the, the theme of, say, a project or something like that, and then you talk about the ABT, and then you talk about, you present your log line and a much more, d- trying to develop kind of much deeper sense of narrative for the people who are reading it. And you say that this is really a hard approach to, uh, to pick up, but th- that sort of narrative technique, uh, that you're taking from Hollywood. Part of the reason they're using that as Hollywood is for people to get some sort of emotional connection to what they are watching as well. And you're taking that approach of a narrative structure and you're applying it to the, the science world. So I guess what I would like to know is a little bit more as then we move talking about that log line is what do you, what do you hope scientists and academics could take from that log line sort of template and how might they apply it to their work?
1: Um, the first thing I would hope they would take is the, the universality of narrative. Nar- narrative is, it's not one of many things to be learned. It's its the be all and end all. And uh, people are getting annoyed with me and how much that I've really locked in on this. But it's what happens. You work on this stuff enough and you begin to realize, oh, my goodness, it underpins everything. And without it, you, everything's largely meaningless in life in general. I mean, that that becomes kind of philosophical, but really there's a section in there. T- you talk about the word and a very cool little template that I've developed. That was, we originally called the Dobjansky template. I think we're going to rename it the DZ template for simplicity because people are having trouble with that. But it's, it comes from famous geneticist, Theodosius Dobjansky in the 1930s wrote one of the most important books on genetics. He was part of the modern synthesis, but he wrote an, ed- an essay in the 1970s titled, uh, nothing in biology makes sense except in the light of evolution. And that one sentence is incredibly powerful narratively. And I've turned it into a template, which is nothing in blank makes sense except in the light of blank. And it turns out you can use that for anything as a tool to help you find what is the narrative, what's the core narrative theme of what we're dealing with. And without theme, things are meaningless. Um, and so, for example, you know, just the other night I was lecturing to political science students And pointing out, use that template, apply it to Trump, and guess what? He nailed it with the one word, which is great or greatness. His Dobjansky template is nothing in America today makes sense except in the light of greatness. He built his entire campaign around that one concept that we were great and we're not as great. We've got to get back to being great, which, by the way, matches the hero's journey. That, once again, is the depth of his narrative intuition. So it's a matter of finding, you know, that one core theme to it and realizing that narrative is, is everything. And then Dobjansky in that paper, um, there's a a quote that I pull out of there. one sentence. It's really wonderful. And he says, I'm talking about the idea of, so evolution is the story. It is the narrative biology. And what he's saying is that, um, well he says that without that light of, of evolution, you end up with a sundry list of facts, some of which may be interesting or even curious, but ultimately are meaningless, and that is the truth. So in other words, if you stand there as an evolutionist and lay out a bunch of skeletons of different weird creatures on a table, um, if you don't know evolution, you've got a whole bunch of facts here that are really interesting and really curious. I mean, you see this every day on Discovery Channel and National Geographic of them presenting all these interesting and curious facts without any clear narrative to it. But it's only when you finally find that narrative, that story that's going on, namely evolution in the case of biology or Whatever other topic you're working on, um, that suddenly that gives you all the meaning to what it is you have here for this information. Suddenly you've got this narrative to explain. You could call it a story, but I really prefer the word narrative. And by the way, you know, I, I present at the beginning of the book, um, this Google engram searching the word narrative throughout the past, um, four or five decades. And, you know, it's one of the Google analytics that searches every book published in the last few decades. Yes. Yeah. And that shows you very clearly that when I grew up in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, nobody used the word narrative. You never heard Walter Cronkite talking about the Vietnam narrative or the space race narrative. It's only the last 15 to 20 years where the word narrative has suddenly cropped up, and now you see it everywhere all day, all over the news, the media and the news pundits and everything like that. And I would argue that that's because the word narrative is a higher level of organization. It's pulling together a whole series of events into these higher-scale patterns and it's not surprising in a world of information overload that we're resorting now to these higher scale patterns that we're, we're talking about.
0: Okay. But building on that, uh, my sense, when I look, particularly when we get to the later part of the book, when you're talking about much more detailed narrative structure and a little more detail, uh, and you talk about the log line, and you indicate that part of that, template you're coming from, you actually uh, revised it somewhat, that it came from the late screenwriting teacher, Blake Snyder, in his screenwriting book, Save the Cat. Is that, am I correct with that? uh,
1: Dory Barton, the co-author in in our connection book, um, was actually a teaching assistant for Blake Snyder. And yeah, she adapted that log line maker from him.
0: Okay. One thing's uh, I've read that book, and I've read yours, and I've I've learned a lot from from both of those uh, both of those books. Uh, and in my seminar, I teach a writing geography seminar at. at at Syracuse and I have my students kind of use that template to understand how a uh, narrative works in a film but one of the things that Edwards did later in his life uh and and fleshed out in more detail he talked about how there's this core narrative but there are different types of genres and we see different types of genres in films he made a lot of uh, he made some catchy titles for them uh names for them like Monster in the House or The Golden Fleece the Golden Fleece being a type of narrative When there's, there might be a group comprised of different people with different skills, uh, and they go out on a journey to, to achieve a common goal. So my question for you, I mean, we have, you're, you're presenting this narrative template. Are there different types of genres that, you know, that, that scientists or other academics should say, like, okay, I want to do this type of narrative, but with this particular twist on it. Uh, and understanding this genre would help me write my work in a better way.
1: Yeah um so first off there's only the one core um and but therefore template that we we should talk sure. about in a few minutes um okay. and that is inviable that that underpins everything then you begin to radiate out it, it it's so parallel to evolutionary biology you know where you've got this core kind of genotype, and then we see it radiating in all these different species. But the more you study, you realize, oh, wait, it's all the same stuff. It's just been molded in different directions. So it's the same deal with all these different genres, as you say. And the problem is that the categorization becomes very subjective beyond that point. And so, for example, in film school, you know, we had some of the greatest screenwriting instructors ever, especially Frank Danielle, who's the, the source of the, the ABT. Um, and one of the little catchphrases that was said a lot there was, you know, there's only two stories that have ever been told. Um, uh, a hero sets out on a journey or a stranger comes to town. Um, but then, <laughs> you know, the next guy comes along and says, you know, there's only four sto- types of stories. There. No, there's only seven stories that have ever been told. No, there's, there's really only nine different kinds of, there's a whole bunch of different, you go searching around the internet, you'll find all these different people, with their websites on how many stories have ever been told. And, and that's just a matter. It's splitters and lumpers. It's so much like taxonomy with different species. It becomes, so subjective. And, you know, I mean, when you study biology, there's really only one unit that is biologically defined, which is the species. Um, species are defined biologically because they divide between um, the, whether or not they can reproduce with each other. There's actual biological definition there. Above that level, everything else, genus, families, and orders, and phyla, and all that stuff, that's all just artificial subjective constructs in people's opinion which is why when you go to a taxonomy meeting, you see these scientists screaming their lungs at each other because it's all argumentation and debate and philosophy among them. And it's the same thing with this categorization of, of films, which is there's really only that one almost biological definition of story structure uh, down at the and-but-therefore level in that hero's journey, the monomyth template, and then everything radiates out from there, and that just all becomes, you know, opinion.
0: Okay. Uh I want to make sure we have time. We've talked around... Uh, your key DNA of yeah. of of narrative, abt. So why don't you flesh that out and tell the the listeners what that means? It,
1: it, it's the most important thing that I've discovered in my entire life. Um, it is, if I've done anything worthwhile, it is that. So this is the template of and but therefore three words, and it is the universal narrative template, I believe. Where it comes from, I modified it from the South Park guys who in 2011 in a documentary mentioned. What they call their rule of replacing, and what they said was, when they get a first draft, they go back in, and every time they see the word "and," they ask themselves if they can replace it with a "but" or "therefore." Every time you replace an "and" with a "but" or "therefore," the storytelling gets more interesting. Um, I eventually tracked it back to Frank Danielle, the screenwriting instructor we had at USC, who was probably about the greatest ever. He, um, in a speech in 1986, talked about this in detail, and what he said is that when we write first drafts of stories. We default to the dreaded, monotonous, and then, and then, and then structure where you're just listing all the events that happen. It is in the revisions that we replace those and thens with but or therefore, and you have to do those to make it into an interesting story where you've got twists and turns and conflict and consequences and all these sorts of things. So he's the guy that kind of pinpointed it way back then. What I've done is take it from that rule of replacing that I heard, turn it into a one-sentence template, uh, it's a story, for example, you know, the wizard of Oz, the story of a little girl named Dorothy and she's living a boring life in Kansas, but then a uh, tornado takes her to Oz. Therefore she's got to find her way home and began to realize that that template fits for every good story ever told. Um, and if it doesn't fit what you've got, then your story probably isn't that good. And even the most complicated stories, if you dig in there, you'll see at their core is still that same basic and, but therefore, or we've now called it the ABT t- template and it's a miracle. I mean, it is truly a miracle because it's so simple, and yet out of that simplicity arises endless complexity. So we now run this program called Story Circles that I'm running with at least five government agencies. Um, we just did it last week with the National Park Service in Colorado and USDA and Fish and Wildlife Service, yada, yada. And Story Circles is a training program now that draws the analogy of physical fitness with the idea that the narrative part of your brain is not anything you can really improve in a one-day workshop. It's really silly to think that a one-day workshop makes a difference. Uh, Instead, you have to set yourself up with a long-term training regime where you're week after week doing these exercises we put together that start to strengthen this this part of your brain and develop that narrative intuition. That's the ultimate goal. So Story Circles is 10 one-hour sessions. And last week when I was there in Colorado, we filmed a discussion with six people that just finished two of the Circles And it's incredible the things that they said. You know, it has changed the way that they read, the way they write, uh, and the way they think. And it needs to find its way into the humanities. It's such a powerful tool because you start to look at all the great speeches of history and you see the ABT present wherever there is effective communication, wherever there's great oration. The Gettysburg Address, Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech, on and on. Um, And we're just getting deeper and deeper into figuring out how we use these. But at the core of it all, it's these three, the fundamental forces of narrative, I believe, are the ABT, the elements, which is agreement, contradiction, and consequence. And there's all these other versions of it. In the business world, they talk about setup, conflict resolution. In the comedy world, it's sort of setup, twist, and punchline. You see it everywhere. It all tracks back to Hegel and that triad of thesis, antithesis, synthesis. But the ABT is the simplest of all forms. I, uh, therefore, my buddy Park Howell at Arizona State University and their sustainability school has called it the DNA of story, and he runs a podcast called The Business of Story. And um, I've, he and I both firmly believe that now. It's about three years we've been working this thing backwards and forwards. And the thing that's cool about it is almost the fractal nature of it, which is that out of this simple little three-word template, and but therefore you can put it together and radiate it out into enormous complexity, and you can have a whole complex story but its core, it's all built out of these little ABT units over and over again.
0: Well, okay. So ABT, and I, I've really been impressed with that and found that tool to be very useful and sort of sharpening my own narratives and then also uh, some of the narratives that my students are creating. And you talk about how this is really essential for effective communication. And we're at a point now when we sort of look at co- politically what has happened in this country, that we had two candidates, one seemed whether we like them or we hate them uh, actually effective at communicating to the general public and then another candidate, Hillary Clinton, who was less effective in that. So you've been talking recently both on your blog and then in some other interviews you've done about some of the problems that Hillary Clinton have and the successes that Trump has had as a communicator. So can you talk a little bit about that as well?
1: Yeah. So where we go from the ABT then is to the fundamental tool for story circles, which we call the narrative spectrum. And it's the idea of taking material and there's a whole spectrum, a gradient basically. So at one end, we have no narrative content at all, which we've termed the and, 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 or AAA template. And you get that with scientists all the time. They're up there giving you one fact, and here's a here's a graph of this, and here's some data on this, and there's no narrative going on. They're just presenting reams of information with no overarching narrative. Um, in the middle, the ideal form is the ABT, and then at the other end is too much narrative that I've termed DHY for despite, however, yet. And it's the idea of a whole bunch of... of sentences starting with words of contradiction, basically. So despite previous work on this, however other people say this, yet some people do this, but some people, and it's too many narrative threads. And you can get this sometimes with very smart people, two professors talking among themselves. They can communicate on five narrative threads all at the same time, but nobody around them can understand what the hell they're talking about. And it happens all the time. So the goal then is to work, to get away from these two ends of the spectrum. At the one end, the AA is boring. At the other end, the DHY is confusing. In the center is interesting with the ABT. And what began to happen two years ago as the two candidates began to emerge from the pack, uh, I began to get horrified looking at this, realizing this is a narrative mismatch. We've got this guy, Trump, who's got deep narrative intuition and has been on TV for all these years and is an entertainer and he knows how to hold people's interest. And then we've got this other person who's a policy walk, who's incredibly smart, but is deeply mired in the world of and, and, and. That's what you get with heavily informational people. They don't feel this driving need to to craft narrative structure that they will sit and listen to each other just spewing out information. And I then began to analyze their speeches using a very simple index that derives from the ABT, which is simply the ratio of butts to ands. And I began to think to myself, surely it's not this simple, but trust me, it absolutely truly is. If you start to calculate for speech after speech of Trump, the ratio of butts to ands and do the same thing for Hillary Clinton what you'll see for as of last spring when he was in the height of the, the, uh, primaries, his ratio was nine, it was 29 for about 30 performances and hers was 14. So he had double the ratio of narrative content, in what he was doing. And it's not surprising. All you got to do is listen to him, you know, and he's saying, but over and over again, you know, we love the Mexicans, but we got to build a wall, you know, but we got too many illegals. Therefore we got to build a wall. Everything he does, he's a deal maker. He's all about problem solution and. He is tightly structured on this ABT. Um, she is much more caught up in the information. She relishes in all the nuance. That's why she's so brilliant and, and, you know, amazing if you're really smart and into what she's doing and have the patience for that. But it's not the voice for the masses. It doesn't hold their interest. So I began writing editorials about this and hit an absolute brick wall with all the journalists, all the political pundits. Not a single one of them would listen to what I was saying. Um, the editors at the five thirty eight blog wrote back and said, this is intriguing, but we're skeptical that it can't be this simple. Well, it is. And now you've got a, pr- a president to prove it to you. And that's what all these quote experts got out of the past year and a half was an inability to analyze anything in this sort of perspective of narrative and see that he had a powerful singular narrative of make America great again. And by the way, that word again Think back to what I was saying about the hero's journey. As soon as you get in the, the special world, the only thing you want is to get back to the ordinary world again. And that's what he was tapping into. The depth of his narrative intuition is stunning in all facets, um, and it's going to continue to rule the mass communication waves because he understands this the way that television does. And, by the way, you know, the first thing that really shocked me was MSNBC Preempting their shows to carry his speeches. Yes, they, I remember that. Yeah, they've no no network has ever done that for a political candidate. Nor would they consider for any of the other ones. And I would argue to you, it's because he met what I call the narrative imperative. If you start analyzing the scripts for documentaries on television, you see that they've got a very high butt to end ratio. And this is not a super precise index, but it's very accurate and consistent. And, you know, at some level, I mean, it's really not significant if you're talking about somebody with a 25 versus a 29. But when you're looking at a 14 versus a 29, it absolutely was what was going on there. And the saddest thing of all was that I found four speeches by Elizabeth Warren and her average was 27 right up there with Trump. And you could see it. He feared Elizabeth Warren because she had the same sort of buzzsaw narrative that she could have gone into him that Hillary simply did not have that trait. And it is that important.
0: Well, I would agree with that completely, and I would agree with your assessment of Elizabeth Warren. I think she has a much stronger uh, narrative sense than uh, than certainly Hillary Clinton did. Well, we're sort of drawing to a close here, Randy, and we've talked about your journey years ago starting as a research scientist, and now you're providing some sort of commentary and insight on uh, narrative in one of the most contentious elections in U.S. history. You know, I tell my students that you're the Johnny Appleseed of narrative, and you're spreading this tools of narrative across the country. And so I thought we might close by maybe you talking about where you want to go. Now you're starting this story or been working on the story circles with uh, some of your associates doing those around the country. Do you have another book in mind or are there are other, um, you know, what's, what's ahead for you. Yeah, in I love terms of view and narrative.
1: Given that I'm still in the afterglow of what went on Monday night this week. Um, now that you've heard all my crankiness and bitterness and frustration uh, the fact is that with all that frustration, there are these incredible payoffs that come along. So it all adds up in the end. And so I hit all those brick walls with all the journalists. And then a year ago right now, I sat down and searched, very simple on Google, Hillary Clinton boring. And The first thing that came up was an article. The headline said, James Carville says Hillary Clinton is boring. And I set my sights on him. And lo and behold, I got found my way to him, sent him a letter. He got it. And he understood it in an instant. He has deep narrative intuition. And make a long story short, we are best buddies now. And on Monday of this week, I spoke to his political science course uh, class at Tulane University for an incredible night, two hours in the living room of his house, he and I sitting there going back and forth. He is the funniest, most entertaining guy. And that made it all worth it. Just one evening with James Carville is all you need to make it all worthwhile. Um, And he gets it. And you know, all I can do, you're, that's a very nice term for you to say, the Johnny Appleseed, because I'm pounding away, but we're, we're definitely making progress. And the, the very cool thing is that it's the government agencies that have lit up on this. Um, I work across a spectrum right now of three different groups. And at one end, I've got the corporate world, and they're fun, but they're not quite as analytical and deeply thinking as as scientists can be. Um, in the middle, I've got these government agencies that, much to my delight and surprise, absolutely get this stuff. And it usually tends to be a mix of two-thirds scientists, one-third of their communicators, and it's exactly the tool that they've needed. So we've developed this training of story circles. Um, We've launched 15 circles now. We've done, I think, 18 demo days, and we're about to launch a whole bunch more, and it's just spreading, and it it works so well. And then, sadly, at the other end of the spectrum is the academics. And i got to tell you, you know, read the opening of my first book, Don't Be Such a Scientist. There is a problem there with academics, with the heavily educated. They have got a problem with listening. They get overly analytical, overly critical, overthinking, and they tear this stuff apart before you can even get to square one. And this happened to us at the University of Chicago with our prototypes, where they took our training program and they analyzed it themselves and chewed it up and spat it out and said, we're not sure this works. When at the same time we ran it at the U.S. Department of Agriculture with five scientists, that a year later said this has changed the way that they do their entire profession now. So there's something in that middle ground there of the very applied world of the sciences. What we've decided is that to, for the training to work, you need one of two things. The participants either have to have a giant need or a giant want for this training because it, you have to fire up your brain and dig in there. It's not easy. This is not, and I, I've been surprised with the, the participants, the ones from USDA that we interviewed. They said, this is hard work. I mean, it really, you've got to spend a lot of time thinking about these things. But the payoff is very large. And I think that's the final message I would offer up overall for all of the stuff that I've learned about narrative is the single most important variable in all of it is time. You cannot do this stuff without allocating a lot of time to it. And sadly, what went on with Hillary Clinton's campaign, because Carville did connect me with them. I've talked about this in the other podcast. And in the end, they didn't listen to anything I had to say. They were too busy. And my colleague, Jade Lovell, um, who's the co-creator of Story Circles with me, uh, is Australian. And she gave me this great expression that that really describes the entire Hillary Clinton campaign in so many places these days, which is they were too busy digging with a teaspoon to take the time to reach over and pick up the shovel. And that's what it was. You know, I tried to talk to them. If you guys would take a little time here and learn these narrative templates, you could come back and craft a message and actually work more efficiently and, in fact, we've got people, some of the communications people have done story circles now who have said that the ABT is now saving them time by working more efficiently, but you've got to stop digging with the teaspoon for a little while and pick up the shovel. And it's just so frustrating. And, by the way, there's a corporate client that I've met with a, uh, a month ago and ran them through two-and-a-half hours of stuff unexpectedly. We booked one hour, and it got going so fast that we stayed for two-and-a-half hours. And as the guy led me out the parking lot, the head guy their branding team, He said, This is the stuff we never find time for. And that's the same deal. They're all busy. They're running so fast, digging with their little teaspoons, they can't find the time to learn how to use a shovel. And that's a, I think that's a major syndrome in our entire society right now. And once again, this narrative stuff is so important, but it takes time.
0: Yeah. I agree. It's, uh, you can, Read your book and learn some of the basics, but it definitely takes a lifetime to come and master this. So, unfortunately, Randy, we're gonna have to bring this to an end. So, to our listeners, I would say two things. Uh, First of all, please get a copy of the book, uh, "Houston, We Have a Narrative: Why Science Needs Story." Also, see Randy Olson's um, wonderful website and blog called www.scienceneedsstory.com. You'll find on that, if you go to that uh, site and go to the blog, you'll actually see an account where he talks about where Randy talks about meeting uh, James Carville and speaking to his class in Tulane. So once again, Randy, I'd like to thank you for spending some time with us on new books in geography. You
1: betcha. And please thank Terry Ettinger once again for me.